Section 9 of the Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 29, The Science of the Sea, Part 2. 5. The Life of the Sea. There is probably far more living matter in the sea than there is in all the rest of the world. Spencer was right in speaking of the sea's, quote, abundant progeny, whose fruitful seed fair passeth those on land, end quote. As the animals of the sea have been discussed in the chapter dealing with adaptations to environment, we need not now do more than make the general economy clear. The visible rays of the sun can penetrate to 500 fathoms, and the actinic rays further, so there is a vast area within the sun's appreciable influence, and this is the area of productivity. Here are the great floating sea meadows. No doubt there is great importance, especially in the shallow waters, in the organic fragments which are broken off from the larger shore seaweeds and from the seagrass, zostera, or borne down by rivers. But the microscopic green algae of the open waters play a fundamental part. By their photosynthesis, they set agoing the upbuilding of the complex carbon compounds from the raw materials of air and sea. They are devoured by small animals, and, as we have seen, there is a long ladder of incarnations, from diatom to mackerel. There is also a ceaseless rain of moribund animalcules and of sea dust from the surface zones downwards to the abyssal ooze nor can we forget the part that green organisms play in helping to oxygenate the surface waters of the sea thus making it a possible home for ordinary animals like crustaceans and fishes the most important impression is that of the abundance of minute forms of life linked together in nutritive chains sir william a herdman writes quote, it may be recorded that brandt found about two hundred diatoms per drop of water in keel bay and hansen estimated that there are several hundred millions of diatom under each square meter of the north sea or the baltic it has been calculated that there is approximately one copepod a minute crustacean in each cubic inch of baltic water and that the annual consumption of these copepods by herring is about a thousand trillion and that in the sixteen square miles of a certain baltic fishery there is copypot food for over 530 millions of herring of an average weight of 60 grams. Well, might Spencer say, quote, so fertile be the floods in generation, so huge their numbers, and so numberless their nation. End quote. The Bacteria of the Sea As is made clear in Sir Raid Lancaster's article on bacteria, these microbes play a very important part in the economy of the sea. They are inconceivably numerous wherever there is abundant organic matter, except perhaps in the great depths, for we know almost nothing of deep-sea bacteria. They are, in any case, least abundant in deep and cold waters, and most abundant in shallow water, or where cold and warm currents meet. One of their headquarters is certainly the thickly peopled mudline, where at a certain distance offshore the organic sea dust settles down to form fine mud. The marine work of bacteria is in the main threefold. Some of them, by putrefaction and fermentation, convert the excretions and dead fragments of animals into carbonate of ammonia. This may be utilized by marine plants, but it becomes more readily available when changed by oxidation into nitrites and nitrates. 
This is the work of the nitrifying bacteria, and where there is abundance of them, the minute marine algae flourish in the waters. But there is other bacteria which reverse what is done by their neighbors. They reduce nitrates to nitrites, nitrites to ammonia, and ammonia to free nitrogen. So their work lessens the amount of nitrogen that can enter into the cycle of life. For there are only two or three ways, for example, by the root tubercule bacteria of certain plants, that free nitrogen can be utilized by living creatures. Color of the sea Part of the fascination of the sea is in its changeful coloring. It is eternally new. To some extent the color is due to reflection from the sky. Quote, but the fact that blue and even indigo blue may be seen with overcast sky, while the deep blue is not observed in the Arctic waters, even with the bright sunshine, proves that this is not the sole cause. End quote. A long tube of distilled water has a blue color, and the addition of impurities changes this to green. It is probable, therefore, that the bluest sea, for example, of the Gulf Stream, is the purest, and that the greenest, for example, of the Arctic Ocean, contains most extrinsic material. It is all a question of the reflection of different wavelengths of the white light. The extrinsic material consists of the minute organisms of the plankton, for example, reddish algae in the Red Sea, and suspended sediment brought down by the rivers, for example, in the Yellow Sea of the Chinese coast. The color may also be affected by differences in the salinity and in the amount of dissolved gases. In the shallow waters, for example, among the coral reefs, reflection from the colored floor will also count. In the article on electric and luminous organisms, attention has been directed to the frequent phosphorescence of the sea, both on the surface and in the depths. There is often a welter of sparks in the wake of the vessels, and the oars of the rowing boat drip fire in the summer darkness. Apart from phosphorescent bacteria, the light-producing organisms of the sea are all animals, of every degree up to fishes, and the display often beggars description. There is a suggestion of it in the ancient mariner, but the term sea snakes must not be taken literally. Quote, Beyond the shadow of the ship I watched the water snakes. They moved in tracks of shining white, and when they reared, the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. Within the shadow of the ship I watched their rich attire. Blue, glossy green, and velvet black, they coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire. End quote. In the well-investigated case of the small open secrustation called Cypridina, the luminescence is associated with the action of a ferment, luciferase, which operates upon and brings about the rapid oxidation of a light-producing substance, luciferin. But we do not know what this means in the physiological economy of the animal's body, or what use, if any, the light may have in the creature's everyday life. Ice in the sea In the far north, the winter sea is covered with ice, heavier than freshwater ice because of the salts, but still able to float and to bear the sleds of the Eskimos and the explorers. Tidal and other currents break the sheet into pack ice, which may be piled up into little mountains. In the Arctic summer, when the sun does not set, the ice plain breaks up into a flow ice, which drifts southwards in a long procession and gradually melts. Both in the Arctic and in the Antarctic, an ice foot is formed as a fringe along the land, partly marine and partly terrestrial in origin. 
Quite different are the icebergs, which are the broken-off lower ends of glaciers and are therefore fresh. These huge masses may rise 100 to 200 feet above the water, but that is only one-sixth to one-seventh of their total length. When the submerged part melts much more rapidly than the exposed part, the iceberg may become top-heavy and turn turtle. As the icebergs drift southwards, they become a menace to ships, the most terrible of the many tragedies being the wreck of the Titanic, April 14, 1912, when 1,517 persons lost their lives. It must be realized that icebergs are often great floating islands several miles across, and that they play an important part in transporting sediment and in affecting the salinity and temperature of the sea as they melt. Their climatic influence penetrates far inland in countries like Labrador and Nova Scotia. The Uses of the Sea In many ways the sea makes the earth more livable. It absorbs the heat of the tropical sun and distributes it far and wide. It tempers the great heat by currents of ice-cooled water from the poles and by cold water rising from the wintry depths. It is the cradle of many of the winds which do so much for good as well as ill. It is the central depot in the incalculably important circulation of water. It is the beginning and the end of rivers. Its give and take, absorption and restoration of atmospheric gases makes for uniformity in the composition of the air. It is the universal clearing house, the universal cleanser. In the sea all waste is reduced to its common denominator, and the results of the wear and tear of the earth are laid down in deposits which might again become rocks. Finally, the sea yields man a rich harvest. It has always been one of his great schools, and it binds together much more than it separates. The End of the Sea There was a time, as we have seen, when there was no sea. The elements that unite to form water, H2O, were imprisoned in the mineral matter of the molten crust, and later on there was water vapor in the hot atmosphere. Gradually the earth passed into what has been called the terraqueous phase of its evolution or development. But if the supply of heat from the sun becomes in the course of ages less and less, the earth will become cold like the moon and colder. The sea will become as hard as rock, frozen from top to bottom, quote, and over this will roll an ocean of liquid air about fifty feet in depth, end quote unless indeed something else happens to this earth of ours. 6. Denizens of the Sea In the chapter on Adaptations to Environment, something has been said of the animal life and the plant life of the sea. As has been explained, there are littoral, pelagic and abyssal marine animals peopling the shore area, the open sea and the deep sea, respectively. Similarly, as regards plants, there is the very important shore vegetation of seaweeds and sea grass, zostera, the broken fragments of which are borne seawards to serve as a fundamental food supply for multitudes of fishes, mollusks, crustaceans and worms on the floor of relatively shallow waters. On the other hand, there is the pelagic population of floating algae, more or less microscopic, on which the daintier open sea animals, like crustaceans, feed while others sink down as they die to the plantless abysses. In this chapter on the science of the sea, we must bring in the animals again, the sea's abundant progeny, and we begin with the open sea. Open Sea Animals Our first picture may fittingly be devoted to whales. Every age has had its giants, and the giants of today are the whales, 
for the sperm whales and the right whales may be fifty feet long, and there are others larger still. It does not seem certain that the toothed whales and the whalebone whales form one order, which would mean that they have had a common ancestry, for the fact is that a superficial resemblance is apt to blind us to a multitude of detailed structural differences. It is possible that whales evolved twice, but whether once or twice, they almost certainly evolved from terrestrial ancestors, as their vestiges of hind legs, for instance, seem to indicate. Suckling the offspring, as whales of course do, could not have begun in the sea, but the adventure of the cetacean pioneers, which led to a change of habitat from shore to sea, must have begun millions of years ago. The whale's adaptations to marine life are so numerous and so penetrative. What a bundle of fitness is a whale! The torpedo-like shape, the almost frictionless skin, the tail turned into a propeller with horizontally flattened flukes, the balancing flippers made out of four limbs, the blubber that conserves the precious animal heat and makes the great mass of the body more buoyant, the position of the valved nostrils on the top of the head so that air may be more readily inhaled when the creature comes to the surface of the sea, the relatively huge chest cavity and lungs, the almost invariable reduction of the number of offspring to one at a time, and the special milk reservoirs which give the young one a big mouthful at once. The toothed whales feed on true fishes and on cuttlefishes, but the whalebone whales feed on small open-sea animals, such as the lightly-built mollusks, known as sea butterflies, which are caught in the great cavern of the open mouth on the frayed edges of the baleen plates. In rushing through the water with the mouth gaping, the baleen whale would be apt to drown itself, were it not that it is able to shunt forward the spout-like opening of the windpipe into the posterior opening of the nasal passage on the roof of the mouth. Thus no water can go down the wrong way. At first sight a whale seems hairless, but in most cases groups of hair can be seen about the snout, jaws and skin. As some embryo whales show numerous hair rudiments on the front part of the body, it seems safe to conclude that the ancestors of modern whales had hair like other mammals. And the interesting point is that the hairs which remain are sometimes more than the telltale evidence of the past. They are actually of use as tactile structures. In the right whale, they are extraordinarily well enervated, 400 nerve fibers sometimes going to a single hair. They illustrate the conservatism of evolution, that an ancient structure may be kept hold of as long as it is of use. On the other hand, when the use has quite gone, the structure may entirely disappear, as has probably been the case with the whale's ear trumpet and third eyelid. In some embryo whales, there are two button-like projections that look like the last traces of externally projecting hind limbs, and it is impressive to see the deeply buried vestigial thigh bone of a North Atlantic right whale. It is only five inches long. On a sea voyage, the spouting of whales is a familiar sight. It means that the used-up air is blown out very forcibly from the nostril, perhaps half a dozen times in rapid succession and that the water vapor in the breath condenses into drops in the cold air, sometimes accompanied by a little spray borne up by the blast. Spouting water is of course impossible, and Milton was not very happy in his remark, quote, and at his gills draws in, and at his trunk spouts out a sea, end quote. A right whale may remain under water for twenty minutes, which is a marvelous feat for an air-breathing animal. 
Of the creature's vast strength some indication may be obtained from the record of one which was struck in the early morning of Nantucket, and heading out to sea, towed a boat with six men in it for seven hours and eventually got free. It took the men five hours hard pulling to get home. 7. Marine Birds From among the marine birds we may select two, the penguins and the puffins. Quainter creatures than penguins it is hard to find, but their adaptiveness is not less striking. They have sacrificed their wings to form the powerful swimming flippers, which strike the water like springy oars, and enable the birds to dive to a depth of ten fathoms. They can toddle on the ice, toboggan on the snow, and climb a cliff to a height of seven hundred feet. They can fast for four weeks when they are nesting. They can survive for several weeks within a snowdrift. Year after year they find the Antarctic shores from afar, although their flightlessness keeps them on the surface of the sea. Another bird that spends much of the year on the open sea is the puffin, a quaint member of the well-defined family of auks. The puffin, Dr. Townsend writes, is a curious mixture of the solemn and the comical. Its short, stocky form and abbreviated neck, ornamented with a black collar, its serious owl-like face and extraordinarily large and brilliantly colored bill, suggestive of the false nose of a masquerader, its vivid orange-red feet and legs, all combine to produce such a grotesque effect that one is brought almost to laughter on seeing these birds walking about near at hand. They come to our steep shores at the beginning of summer to mate and breed, and in one locality in the Hebrides, Professor Newton estimated the attendance at about three millions. One egg, white in color, is laid in the recess of a yard-long burrow. It hatches in about a month, and the young bird has to be fed for four or five weeks. We see the parents bringing fishes in their bills, shaped like the coulter or foreyron of a plough, and it is difficult to understand how the number is added to without losing previous captures. It may be that the tongue and some spines in the mouth keep hold when the jaws are opened. There are reptiles of the open sea, notably certain fish-eating turtles like the hogsbill, the loggerhead, and the leathery turtle, all of which have to go back to the sandy shore in order to lay their eggs, just as the land crabs have to return to the sea. For the natural history rule, with some explicable exceptions, is that animals go back to their old headquarters when they start a new generation. Then there are the genuine sea snakes, no doubt descendants of land snakes, which show a posterior flattening of the body from side to side, giving them a good grip of the water when they swim. At least some of them come to the shore to bring forth their young. Fishes in the open sea. There are many open sea fishes, like the so-called flying fishes, which skim along the waves when pursued by the tunny, or may take advantage of a breeze to sail like an albatross. Mackerel and herring might be counted also as characteristically pelagic fishes. Among backboneless animals there are many that frequent the open waters, the beautiful sea snails and sea butterflies, which whalebone whales are fond of, the argonaut cuttlefish, which has the most beautiful cradle in the world, hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of crustaceans, one family of pelagic insects, various transparent worms, the exquisite ctenophores, the strange Portuguese men-of-war, the jellyfishes and the swimming bells, and many protozoa, often extraordinarily beautiful, like the calcareous globigerinids and the silicious radiolaria.
Some are active swimmers, some are easy-going drifters, and one must remember that besides the animals that live always in the open waters, there are many larvae which only spend their youth there, afterwards returning to the more strenuous life on the shore. Among open-sea animals there are endless adaptations that secure floatability, that save them from being broken by the waves, that help them to get their food, and that give the young ones a successful start. But let us take one instance. Ordinary ship barnacle hatch out as minute free-swimming larvae. After a while they fix themselves to floating logs or wooden ships, and the front of the head grows into a long flexible stalk, at the end of which there dangles the crustacean's main body. It is encased in five valves of lime, and six pairs of beautifully curled feet waft the food into the mouth. So far the common barnacle, but there is another species, Lepas fascicularis, which has a different history. It often fastens itself to a small piece of detached seaweed. It may be a feather or a wooden match. Its shelf valves are very lightly built, with little lime in them, and this is well suited for a creature that fixes itself to a light float. But in spite of its lightness of shell, the floating barnacle, as we may call it, often becomes, as it grows bigger, too heavy for its float, and begins to drag it below the surface. What, then, does the creature do? We wish we understood it better, but makes a somewhat gelatinous roundish boy containing bubbles of gas. This is secreted at the lower end of the attaching stock, just above the main body, and the self-made boy enables the barnacle to continue floating at the surface. This is a beautiful adaptation. Deep-sea animals. No doubt the strangest haunt of life is the deep sea, by which is meant the floor of the very deep parts of the sea and the layers of dark water near the floor. It may be six miles below the surface. There is enormous pressure because of the immense weight of the water, 2.5 tons on the square inch at 2,500 fathoms. It is very cold, a little on each side of the freezing point of fresh water. It is absolutely dark apart from the fitful gleams of luminescent animals. It is calm, silent, monotonous, and plantless. But there is no deep too deep for animal life. Indeed, in many places there is an abundant abyssal fauna. Some of the adaptations to the strange haunt are readily intelligible. The long stalks of sea lilies and sea pens lift the body out of the treacherous ooze. The long legs of some crabs and sea spiders are suited for walking delicately. There is often an exquisite development of tactility, well fitted for a world of darkness. The body is often porous and so thoroughly penetrated by water that the great pressure is not felt. Perhaps the big goggle eyes of some of the nightmare-like abyssal fishes may be suited for utilizing the phosphorescent light. Some deep-sea animals, whose seashore relatives liberate eggs, bring forth young ones viviparously, probably an adaptation that counteracts the risk of the passive eggs being smothered into the ooze. As there are no plants in the abysses, the struggle for existence among the larger animals must be keen, and the teeth of many of the deep-sea fishes declare their fiercely carnivorous habits. We can understand why the gape of some of these fishes is often so large in proportion to the body. They must make the most of a meal when they get a chance. The stomach is sometimes very elastic, and the under surface of the body very dilatable, so that what is swallowed may be large, even too large, for the size of the body. When a big open-sea animal, like a whale, comes to grief and sinks to the bottom, with its flesh much compacted by the driving out of water from the muscle fibers, 
it will be nibbled to bits by legions of crustaceans such as some of the sea slaters or isopods for it is not known that there is any rotting in the deep sea but what counts for most in the way of nutrition is not the sinking down of big things it is the rain of dead animalcules from the surface miles overhead the circulation of matter is doubtless illustrated in the deep sea just as elsewhere the fish eats the crustacean and that the worm and that the organic particles of the ooze but it is possible that the vital processes are slowed down considerably in the conditions of great pressure low temperature and eternal night so that the severity of the rationing is not so much felt as we might expect the delicate bones and soft flesh of some of the abyssal fishes suggest that they are not capable of very energetic movements and that would make the food problem easier can we make any sort of picture of a deep-sea scene darkness like that of a moor at midnight with no light except from stars and will-o'-the-wisps beds of sea-pens with their bases in the ooze swayed gently by their own life like rocking lighthouses many other long-stocked creatures often supremely graceful the sea-lilies for example now and then among the fixed forms there come ruddy crustaceans stealthily prowling some with long limbs like stilts and with far-reaching fillers that probe into distant corners then there are cuttlefishes and truefishes mostly swimming slowly and often lit up all over like ocean liners at supper-time eight seashore animals in the natural history sense the shore area means the whole stretch of well-lighted relatively shallow water where seaweeds grow as a haunt it is marked by notable diversity much changefulness great congestion and a keen struggle for existence struggle for foothold and for food against furious storms and the appetite of many enemies almost every kind of animal is represented on the littoral area there are even some seashore insects and spiders thus it seems fair to speak of seals as shore mammals since they come on to dry land not only at the breeding season but for resting purposes at any time it is plain that their emancipation from dry land is less thorough-going than that of whales but yet their adaptations are many the somewhat conical shape is suited for swift swimming everything is done to reduce friction the hind legs are thrown backwards beside the short tail to form a propeller the nostrils can be closed under water the sensitive whisker hairs are of use in dark diving the structure of the eye is adjusted to the gloom the blubber makes the seal buoyant it shuts in the animal heat it is a store to fall back on when it is too stormy to fish the teeth with their tips tilted backwards serve to grip the slippery booty what a bundle of fitness the common seal foca vitulina can swim at the rate of ten miles an hour which is about half the dolphin's speed the forelimbs are kept close to the breast except when turning or steering the swimming is due to the very muscular posterior body aided by the hind legs a powerful propeller that does not turn round the movements on land are rather toilsome seals are quick of hearing and gather to unusual sounds such as music they have fine brains affectionate dispositions and a pleasant playfulness in their conjugal relations they are at once polygamous and polyandrous the pup can take to the water the day of its birth but it needs long rests ashore and much mothering which it certainly gets the polar bear of the far north is a seashore animal and often lies on the ice 
waiting for a seal's head to bob up. One of the Arctic explorers has told us of a polar bear lifting the seal right out of the water with one stroke of the arm and sending it crashing over the ice with its skull stove in. The walruses, also of the north, dig up shore bivalves with their huge tusks. Those archaic mammals, the dugong and the manatee, are also literal, and it is interesting to hear of the manatee finding its way far inland to that naturalist's paradise, the Everglades of Florida, thus becoming practically a freshwater mammal. Many birds frequent the shore, but in most cases for a season only. We think of gulls and terns and cormorants, of sandpipers and curlews and oyster-catchers, the last able to knock the limpets off the rocks with dexterous strokes of their bills. The seaweed-eating edible turtles can never go far from the shore, and there is a marine lizard, Amblyrhynchus, of the Galapagos Islands, that swims out to sea and dives among the seaweed. The seashore fishes are many, for example, Father Lusher, Sand Eel, Cockpadle, and Stickleback. Very characteristic is the gunnel of butterfish, Centronotus gunellus, which is incredibly difficult to catch because of its powers of insinuating itself between the stones and into crevices, and of slipping through your fingers when you have captured it at last. Many of the sea squirts, which start life as vertebrates and end as degenerate nondescripts, are at home on the shore, and in the clean sand out a few yards there is often some kind of balanoglossus, a most interesting connecting link, vulgarly supposed to be always missing, between worms and vertebrates. Of literal mollusks there seems at first no end. The toothsome vegetarian periwinkles, the limpets clinging to the rocks and homing from a short distance, the carnivorous roaring buckies, or big whelks, whose shells children hold to their ears like portable whispering galleries, and the dog whelks everywhere. Cockles and mussels, oysters and clams, scallops and razor shells, are familiar bivalves of the shore area, feeding daintily on microscopic organisms and organic particles, which the gills waft into the mouth. The octopuses lurking among the rocks on the lookout for crabs are the highest of invertebrates, and are occasionally big enough to be formidable to men, as Victor Hugo portrays in his immortal Toilers of the Sea. Shore crustaceans are legion, crabs and lobsters, shrimps and prawns, amphipods and isopods, acorn shells and water fleas. What combinations of armor and weapons, what camouflaging and trickery, what fitness they show! A common accident is the bruising of a crab's leg by a dislodged stone. It will not mend, so it is sacrificed. And under the bandage, where the self-mutilation is effected, a new leg is formed in miniature. Then there is such a living fossil as the king crab of North American coast and the Moluccas, the last of an ancient race, a rib van winkle among arthropods, breathing by gill books, which no other animal in the world possesses. Its type has been living on since the Triassic, for millions of years, and it is fed to pigs. There are also starfishes and brittle stars, sea urchins and sea cucumbers, many of them practicing the same reflex device as the crabs, a limb for a life. Autonomy is followed by regeneration, as the technical phraseology quaintly puts it. Of the legions of worms, wandering and sedentary, segmented and unsegmented, no outsider can form a picture, but everyone knows the lobworm or lugworm, which the fishermen dig for bait. It does on the flat beach what the earthworm does in the meadow, 
it keeps the soil circulating. Lower still are the corals and sea anemones, the zoophytes and shore sponges, and the microscopic foraminifera and infusorians. Perhaps there is no haunt of life so interesting as the shore. It is so varied in different places, so diverse at the same place, so changeful, so stimulating, so full of danger. Given a diversified, changeful, difficult haunt, densely peopled by a representative set of animals, there must be a keen struggle for existence and a ceaseless sifting. Given a very stimulating environment, as the shore is par excellence, there will be opportunity to test all the variations which living creatures are ever venturing. It may be, indeed, that the stimulating character of the seashore has been, through the ages, provocative of those new departures which form the raw material of evolution. The shore is a treasure-house of adaptations, all sorts of answers back to the limitations and difficulties which meet the urges of hunger and love. Most of the great stocks of animals have passed through the discipline of the shore school, and even in men we can hear the echoes of the ancient tides. End of section 9